Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I think my mind was just blown because you head out to sea and it's it's this big, wide, empty, open space. It's just a scale that kind of blows your mind a little bit. And there's these birds, and for them, that's home. They know exactly where to find food. They cover huge distances, and I kind of just fell in love with that, with their resilience, and they're gorgeous as well. Kia ora, naumai harumai ki tō tātou au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, called Clerk and Cannon Dene. Eden Whitehead is a PhD student at Waipapa Taumatauro, the University of Auckland. She has always loved birds, something handed down to her from her father and grandfather. But she credits a trip to the subantarctic islands for opening her mind to the incredible world of seabirds. I think they're amazing. They are amazing migrators. They're so athletic. Some of them forage up to 80 metres underwater, like Titi Suri shearwaters can dive to 80 metres to grab a fish. The athleticism involved with that is insane. So they just blow my mind in so many ways and they're the most threatened group of birds in the world. They face threats at sea and on land. It's a double whammy. Anything we can do to look after them better is stuff I'm interested in finding out about. And Eden would know about the threats. She wrote the book on it. Or, well, she was the lead author of the 76-page report Threats to Seabirds in Northern Aotearoa, New Zealand, in 2019. So it was an assessment of all the threats to all the seabird species that breed in Northern Aotearoa. And different things will impact different species differently um, because of what they're exposed to, where they forage. Species like our nocturnal shearwaters and petrels are much more impacted by artificial light at night than, say, diurnal species like terns and gulls. So there's a lot of things there. But The key thing we did with that review was also highlight the knowledge gaps that we have around seabirds in general. So for some of them, we don't even have an idea of how many of them there are. And you can't say something's endangered or not doing well if you don't have a baseline measure of how many there were to begin with. And we also looked at knowledge gaps around the threats. So there's a lot we don't know about how much seabirds are impacted by things like plastic pollution in our ecosystem context but they're not necessarily things that you need to know in great detail to mitigate. Some of the knowledge gaps that Eden identified are ones that she's now focusing on for her PhD. She's studying seabird ecology, physiology and conservation and I caught up with her at a picnic bench near Old Government House on the university campus. So what I've been doing over the past three years, lockdowns permitting, is going out to islands and looking at four different 
seabird species in the Hauraki Gulf. And what I've been doing is doing a bit of GPS tracking to see where they go and forage. So that's the behavioural ecology side of things. Um, and that's really important when we think about things like marine protection for seabirds and focusing on areas that they rely on to forage. The other things I've been looking at are their internal physiology, so measures of their health, basically, both of adults and of chicks. Um, so we can potentially use internal measures of their health as a way of monitoring sublethal stress. So we worry a lot about these big wrecks of seabirds where heaps of them wash up dead. Um, but there's not a lot we can do about that once the birds are washed up on the beach, we can't help. But if we can know beforehand that birds, certain populations are under stress, then we can think about adaptive management of those populations. She's also been looking at the diet of these birds. Well, when she's lucky enough that they overshare with her. We've got a lot of species that forage in really similar ways. They also have really overlapping breeding seasons. Um, so we need to know what resources in this ecosystem that we have that they're relying on, how do they partition it out so that they can all manage to breed at the same time. Um, so a bit of actually looking at regurgitations because some birds are really thoughtful and um, just contribute when you hold them, <laughs> which is always good fun for you and not for the bird, but mm. it's really helpful for us because we can actually see directly what they're eating, particularly when they're doing just daily foraging trips. They're coming back with a really fresh gullet full of krill or fish and you find out when it ends up in your lap um, but also stabilized soap analysis so looking broadly at what trophic level these birds are feeding at and whether there's any differences between the different species and also within the species between different seasons. The trophic level of an organism is the number of steps it is from the start of the food web. So in the ocean, it would start with the primary producers, phytoplankton, and then works up to small fish, bigger fish, sharks, you get the picture. So the smaller species of seabirds that she's studying are pakaha, fluttering shearwaters, tutorore, northern shearwaters, and titiwainui, fairy prions. Those are the three species that really sort of overlap a lot. They're similar body size. They're all small seabirds um, from 100 grams up to about 350. And the fourth species is rako, bullish waters, and they're a bit more of a pelagic seabird. They forage more offshore. So it's a good broad spectrum coverage of the kind of ocean ecosystems that we have in our region around Te Kapa Moana, the Hauraki Gulf, we have this really enclosed inshore system where birds like pakaha feed, and then we do have these offshore, past the continental shelf regions as well. So to cover a whole spectrum when we think about monitoring seabird populations, they all exist in different places, and what's happening with some species isn't necessarily happening with others. What she means by spectrum here is what these birds do in terms of migration and where they go to find food. Take the rako, for example. Which are this long-distance migrant. They go to the North Pacific during their non-breeding season. They come back, they forage a lot inshore, but they also travel further away to forage. Totorore are the kind of in-betweeners. They do a non-breeding migration into the South Pacific, but not a particularly long one. The titiwainui, fairy prions, do a smaller migration. Part of the study was actually looking at their migration because this population on the poor nights is the most northerly one and they've not been tracked before, so we did a bit of GLS tracking of them and they do migrate, not as far as the other two species. And finally, the pakaha, fluttering shearwaters, well, they're the homebirds. 
majority of the population stay in local waters around Aotearoa all year round, even during the non-breeding season. A small proportion do migrate across the Tasman, hang out by Australia, but we're not sure if those are pre-breeding birds or if it's just a random part of the population that goes and does that. And in terms of the areas where these four species breed in the Hauraki Gulf, you were going to different islands there. Are they all breeding in the same place or overlapping or different places? They do overlap. There's one island group where all four species breed. Um, that's the Poor Knights Islands, Tafterahi and Aorangi. Um, so I worked on Titiwainu and Rako there because it's the only place that they breed. For Rako, it is the only place they breed in the world which is quite special. Um, Titiwainu, it's the northernmost population of them. The rest of their species are down Cook Strait and further south. But the other two species are quite hard to access on Tafatirahi, which was the main island that I've been working on for the past four years. So we used other study sites as well. Uh, Mauimua, or Lady Alice Island, in the Maroteri Chicken Islands off Whangarei. And for... Uh, Pākehā, we were out on the Mokohino Islands, Pokahinu, Burgess. So it's been quite a quite a lot of field work <laughs> the past four years, but that's, that's why I did it, to be honest. I'm a field biologist. So when you got out on those islands for field work, what does that involve? It's a lot of staying up all night. So all of these species are nocturnal over land, and to work with them, we're working with them when they come back to the island at the start of the season um, to pair up, revisit their old burrows, clean out their old burrows, so we wait for them to come back after dark, and then later during incubation when the birds are changing over, and then during chick rearing when they come back in the evenings to feed their chicks. So we're up at night, we're catching birds, we're putting little GPS loggers on their backs and then retrieving those after... Oh, anywhere between a day and a month, <laughs> which is a lot of very, very long nights. Also taking little feather samples, little blood samples, and then opportunistically whatever else the birds offer us. So regurgitates, fecal samples, which is a nice way of saying you got shat on. <laughs> but yeah, we get very excited when that happens because it's all good data. I mean, when you say travelling to islands in the Hauraki Gulf to study seabirds, it does sound at a first pass quite glamorous. <laughs> but what you've just described is staying up all night to put these tags on, to get vomited on mm -hmm. and pooed upon, and to take feathers off the birds. So actually quite an intense experience then it, it's great i haven't even told you about the facilities yet which are a hole in the ground and a tent um so it's definitely not a holiday a hole in the ground is the bathroom <laughs> yes yes that you dig yourself yes just in case you thought being a seabird researcher was a soft gig each of these aspects she's studying are helping her address specific questions for example the gps tagging and data one thing that we're really interested in is where these birds forage when they've got chicks to feed. Really for them that's the most crucial part of the breeding season is when they're foraging not just to sustain themselves but also when they're growing up the next generation. So one thing that we wanted to do with this is get as high resolution tracking data as we could to see where birds are foraging and we do that by attaching little GPS devices that take fixes every five minutes or so. That's as high resolution as we can get 
with the size device we have because that's limited by how big the birds are. Some of these guys are only 100 grams, so that your device can be maximum 3 grams. So they're really tiny. But what they do is they take fixes every 5 minutes, the bird goes out, has a day or two foraging, comes back to feed the chick, we take it off. From that data we can see where they've gone, which is the first step, but we can also model what behaviours they were doing by seeing how long they spend in certain areas, their flight behaviours, so how frequently they're turning, how fast they're flying, and from that we can predict when they were actually foraging. And that's the key data that we want. We look, want to look at where exactly these birds are foraging over a course of years to see if there's repeated areas that are important for them at that time, at that stage of their breeding cycle and if those persist or if they change based on say water temperatures in the Hauraki Gulf which has been a big one over the past few years with these marine heat waves. She pulls up some of this GPS data from 2019. A little map of Te Ika Maui and a vast blue space of ocean off to the east. White lines represent the routes that the 14 tagged Rako have taken from Tafati Rahi, the largest of the Poor Nights Islands. And two lines head way out. There are species that are seen in the Hauraki Gulf a lot. You know, we see them inshore, we see them foraging in big flocks throughout their breeding season. Um, alongside Pakaha and Titiwainui, there's big foraging flocks that associate with fish schools. Interestingly, a lot of the birds we tracked didn't go into the Hauraki Gulf at all and they actually went quite a long way offshore. We tracked two birds in 2019 that went 2,750 kilometres east of their breeding colony on Tafatirahi. They went way out along the Chatham Rise out into the Pacific to just past a location called the Louisville Ridge, the Louisville Seamount chain, which has been highlighted as quite an important area for a number of different seabird species. Albatrosses from the subantarctic go there to forage. Different species of petrels and shearwaters from all over head out there to feed at some stage or another during their cycle. The birds we tracked in 2021 didn't do that. And obviously we're only looking at a really small subset of the population each year. She still has analysis to do on this. And one thing she will do is compare this GPS data to sea surface temperatures and sea depth measurements. More work awaiting her attention takes the form of hundreds of feathers from both chicks and adults. So what happens when chicks are developing or when the adults are molting and growing their new body feathers is they deposit this hormone corticosterone in their feathers during that feather's development. Once it's finished developing, the blood supply stops and that feather forms a record, basically, of the cumulative stress experienced over the course of that feather's development. So if we compare that between different breeding seasons, then we can get an idea of how much stress the birds have been under during that period of feather development. So for chicks, that's when they're developing in the nest. And the only real cause of stress for these guys, because they're all on predator-free islands, they're not being disturbed by anything, when they're sitting in their burrows, they're pretty well buffered from environmental extremes. Um, that may not hold true when you have really big weather events and they get washed out of burrows, stuff like that. But the only real cause of stress for the chicks there is nutritional stress. If their adults can't bring them enough food because the chicks can't do anything about that. Adults can buffer if they're experiencing stress. They can forage more for themselves, bring less back for the chick. The chick doesn't have an option. So if we look at the feather stress over a series of seasons and relate that to their body mass 
and we see lighter chicks and we see chicks with higher levels of this feather hormone, then we've got a really good indication that something's not going well. And we can tie that if we do this for longer. Three years is not a great sample size, particularly when you've been messed around by COVID. But if we do this over time, we can build up a bit of predictive power about what environmental conditions put the birds under more stress. Where are they going to hit this level that they can't cope with anymore? And the adults have to look after themselves and they just don't have enough energy to get chicks through to fledging. Eden sees a future using this stress level test as a monitoring tool for the populations of birds. With feather samples, she, or others, would then be able to tell whether a breeding colony is under pressure. Hopefully we can integrate it into monitoring for conservation. But that's a real long-term goal. (laughs) It's not going to come out on three years of data, but this is work that I'm pretty passionate about continuing. So, fingers crossed. And in the meantime, there's a bag of bird feathers somewhere waiting for you. A huge bag of feathers from three years of sampling. But you've been on the islands across these breeding seasons with the birds, looking at the birds, weighing the birds. What have you seen? Like, do they look like birds under stress? This past season was quite a depressing one to be on the island with this sustained marine heat wave. In our study plots, we had a number of rako or bullish shearwater chicks that starved to death. Their parents weren't coming back to feed them or they weren't bringing them back enough food. And that's not nice when you're there, you know, weighing and measuring these chicks to see how they're developing. They're meant to have a nice weight trajectory that goes up and up and up and gets fatter than the parents before they fledge. And that really just didn't happen for most of the birds. There were a few standouts who were massively overweight as they should be but a lot of the birds were really struggling and we even pick it up in the adults so adult weights for these species over the past three years has just steadily declined and that's something that you can look at and you can you can see that it's a problem so it's not been good for the chicks it's not been good for the adults looking at the feather stress is just another way of saying yep these birds are under nutritional stress they're not getting the nutrients they need to survive and then we need to figure out why that's happening in the marine system and I think a lot of it is probably tied to this marine heat wave that we experienced over the past year. Is that easy to make that connection? Is it difficult to make that? How do you make that connection? There's, There's so many things when you think about these ecosystems and their function there's so many different things that could influence why birds are not doing well is it the water's hot sure is their prey just not where it was is there not enough of their prey does their prey not have as much nutritional content enough energy content as it would normally because it hasn't grown well because the temperatures are too hot so it's it's hard to say things definitively but I don't think that's necessarily crucial from a conservation point of view We just, we know there's a problem. We know we have some tools in the toolbox that we could use to help mitigate some of the threats to seabirds. And if we can do that, then we can give them a better chance against problems that are harder to solve, like climate change. Climate change is being blamed for more than 40 little blue penguins washing up dead over a week at a far north beach. Hundreds of dead little blue penguins are washing up on beaches around the far north. 
RNZ has previously reported more than 40 had been found dead in Tokoroa Beach, but that is only the beginning. Department of Conservation's Graham Taylor says this huge number of deaths is being caused by rising sea temperatures. The frequency of good years versus bad years that become the issue. And so in the past you might have had a lot of good years followed by one bad year where a lot of birds die, but then they rebound in those good years. But if we start to see the balance tipping towards more bad years versus good years, then they're just not going to be able to recover. Not to be a downer, but we are running out of time. Seabirds get called indicators of ocean ecosystems a lot, and there's a lot of caveats with what they're actually telling you, but if a lot of them are showing up dead, there's nothing good that's coming of that. That's not normal. And it's a worry because these kind of things, like this 200 days of higher than normal sea temperatures are things that are only going to increase in frequency and severity with predicted climate change. And there's going to be some winners and some losers when it comes to seabirds. Some of them will be able to adapt more than others. Species like rako maybe that can travel really long distances to find food elsewhere, they might be able to buffer local impacts of climate change. Species like korora, they're really spatially restricted in their foraging. They forage inshore. They only go certain distances from their breeding colonies. They can't escape. Eden is sounding the alarm. As are others she works with in the seabird conservation area, including her colleagues at the Northern New Zealand Seabird Trust, with whom she also does research and advocacy work. What then are the tools we can use to help? They are tricky birds to conserve. They don't hang out in an eco-sanctuary, so you can't really look after them. You have to protect the marine areas that they're foraging in. We have persistent issues with fisheries bycatch of a lot of seabird species in New Zealand, and it's while there are a lot of mitigation measures in place, looking at the data, there hasn't actually been a lot of improvement in the past few decades with the number of seabirds being caught. There's trouble on land with invasive species. We're really lucky here in Te Kapamoana, the Hauraki Gulf, there are a lot of predator-free islands. So a lot of these birds have that threat completely removed. Some of them don't. Some of them breed on the mainland. Like Korora, the little blue penguins, they're on the mainland around here. Taraiti, fairy terns, our most endangered bird with roughly 40 individuals. They breed on beaches where people like to drive their four-wheel drives. So there's all these different persistent threats to seabirds. Some of them we can tackle, some of them are a bit harder, but if we tackle the ones that we can actively do stuff about, then we give the birds the best chance to buffer against the effects of things that are harder for us to change. We just need more people to know about them, to care about them, to conserve them. That's the Sir David Attenborough thing, isn't it? You know, like seeing something is the key to caring about it and then working to conserve it. Which leads nicely onto your photography. <laughs> because one of the things that you also do on your fieldwork trips and on your work with New Zealand's Northern Seabird Trust is you take a lot of stunning pictures. I take a lot of pictures. <laughs> I think photography, just visual media, is such a good way of engaging people. Personally, I do it because I love it. I like making beautiful things. I love creating beautiful images. The more I do it, the more I want to use my photography to share these experiences that I get to have that are really special. They're experiences I wish everyone could have, as sitting on a seabird island at night and seeing the sky darken and seeing 
silhouettes of shearwaters coming back to their colony from being at sea, circling overhead, plunging through the canopy and starting to scream. Um, it's never a quiet night on a, on a fully-fledged seabird island. It is very noisy. To share the not-at-sea life of some seabirds. So you go out on a boat, you see albatross cruising around, you see shearwaters cruising around. But they're equally at home on land in the forest, and that's where they breed. So... I like using my photography as a tool to share those stories. I'm constantly trying to think of better ways to do it, to illustrate the lives of some of our probably most underappreciated birds. But equally, I just do it because it keeps me sane and I, I love it. It's my creative outlet in an otherwise quite scientific life. In terms of research, Eden has a lot of analysis to do before the end of her PhD. And after that... There's more work to be done. There's work to be done at regional levels. For this Hauraki Gulf ecosystem, I've fallen in love with it. You know, I fell in love with seabirds in the sub-Antarctic and just life dream would be to go and work down there. But northern Aotearoa has 28 species of seabirds breeding. That is on par with the sub-Antarctic islands. It's on par with the Rekohu, the Chathams, with Rangitahua, the Kermadex. We have an amazing diversity right next to Aotearoa's largest urban area. But also we see so many seabirds from elsewhere coming into our region, so it's not just birds that breed here that we need to look after, it's birds that come here when they're not breeding. We get migrants from the North Pacific, we get Jaegers and stuff from the Arctic that come down here, so it's a really important area for seabirds, broadly. And there's a lot we don't know about the birds here, so I definitely want to stay involved with this kind of work. There is a world in which you can imagine that doing this work is full of joy. Measuring fat, fluffy seabird chicks on predator-free islands in a Hauraki Gulf that is stocked full of sea life. A flourishing ecosystem supporting a wide diversity of seabird species. But this is not that world. And so, for a lover of seabirds, it's not easy to be confronted by obvious issues by seabirds in decline, to be finding chicks starving in nests. Her PhD fieldwork then has been a bit of a roller coaster, but Eden continues to be a fierce advocate for these birds she admires. It's hard, um, but I think the lows of it just make me more determined to keep doing it and to make more people realize how important it is. Whitehead for sharing her research with me, as well as Arako colony recordings from Tafati Rahi used in this episode. This story was produced by me, Claire Cannon, and sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Walken is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash Eden has shared some pictures with us that we've put up there for you to have a look. 
And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks for following the show. Have you checked out any of the other excellent RNZ podcasts? There's a huge range on all kinds of topics. Visit the podcast and series tab on the main RNZ website to have a look. I highly recommend Voices, a weekly podcast that tells the stories of those who were born overseas, but now call Aotearoa New Zealand home. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki. Hei kōnei. Thank you.